Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be uh, doing the uh, Sermon on the Plain. And this sounds really familiar. This is going to sound something that's in our mind, and yet today we need to make sure that this is in the context of Luke, and, and Alan's going to put that um, put that together for us. But um, we are in Luke 6, verses 17 through 26. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson for this week takes us into what is known as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel. We are familiar with this because it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Right. But what, what, how are these different? Well, in fact, some, some folks might be thinking, the Sermon on the Plain. What is the Sermon on the Plain? Mm-hmm. I know the Sermon on the Mount. I have never heard of the Sermon on the Plain. Right. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke is simply in Luke chapter 6, and not even the whole chapter. And it's usually overlooked in favor of its better-known cousin, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and of course, the relationship, uh, the relationship between these two is a study in gospel relationships, basically. The two sermons share a great deal of content, but they each have unique material. And that is the definition of the synoptic problem, you know, that mm-hmm. they, they share a lot of material in common, but they, they have a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are several logical options here. Uh, one is that they recount two similar but separate teaching episodes. That would satisfy the folks who like to have a harmony of the Gospels. Mm. Uh, The second option is that the Sermon on the Mount is original and Luke has shortened it. That's logical. The third option is that the Sermon on the Plain is original and Matthew has expanded it. And the fourth option is that both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are are the result of the Gospel writers collecting Mm. and arranging of Jesus' teachings. And I think, in my mind, the last option is the one that makes the most sense. I I would say, say, I haven't studied this like Alan, but that seems to be the most reasonable explanation Well, when you get into it, there's so much that points to that. I mean, Mm. we know just from the similarities in the teachings of Jesus between Matthew and Luke that there was an effort to preserve Jesus' words prior to the existence of our Mm -hmm. written Gospels. And thus, we have the theory of Q or the source of Jesus' teachings. And that may explain what's going on here. Uh, both Matthew and Luke have taken Jesus' teachings and used them in different ways in their Gospels, and that's key. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some of the same teachings, but they're used in different place, ways and even in different places in their Gospel narrative. So Matthew has collected a variety of Jesus' sayings into his Sermon on the Mount, and this is Matthew's pattern. He collects teaching sections, longer teaching sections, and intersperses them with narrative sections. Um, And we know that this is the case, that Matthew has collected a variety of sayings, because there are many parallel sayings from the Sermon on the Mount that are found in Luke's gospel, but they're elsewhere Mm -hmm. in Jesus' ministry, and especially uh, in what Luke constructs as the journey to Jerusalem. They're Mm -hmm. about eight or nine chapters of Luke's gospel that constitute Jesus' final right. journey to Jerusalem, which kind of makes sense because if you think about Luke and Acts, journeys are, are, a, right. are a thing right. for, for him. So, so um, I don't think we should take either the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain at face value uh, as verbatim accounts of actual teaching mm. sessions. Rather, we should pay attention to how each gospel writer constructs these sections of teachings to learn what they were trying to convey about Jesus. Nice. So tell us, Luke in particular, what's unique about his account? Well, um, I think in, in, you know, in general, I'll answer that question by saying um, we've seen it already in the Lucan infancy mm-hmm. narratives mm-hmm. and in Jesus' first uh, sermon, first teaching episode in the synagogue at Nazareth. Mm-hmm. You know, the emphasis on God's mercy and justice in practice, the emphasis on, on the reversal mm-hmm. of fortunes, um, you know, the emphasis on release and the year of the Lord's favor, that is, that is key in, in Luke's Sermon on the Plain. Luke really delves into that theme, and we're going to see that in mm. a variety of ways. 
So Luke introduces the Sermon on the Plain by saying he came down with them and stood on a level place, mm-hmm. the plain, right. that's why it's called the Sermon on the Plain, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. This is significant. They came to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. So that's the way Luke introduces the Sermon Mm -hmm. on the Plain, with this great crowd coming to, um, um, to hear Jesus, but probably primarily to be healed by him. So as you, I, I'm hearing, I guess, some similarities with, with Matthew, but how about Mark? Yeah, there is a certain similarity with Matthew uh, as well, um, because Matthew also introduces the mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount with this kind of a statement yeah. about people coming yeah. from everywhere. But the content of these verses, Luke 6, 17 through 19, really has more in common with Mark's statement about Jesus' healing mm-hmm. ministry in Mark 3, mm-hmm. 7 through 13. And, and in this case, it seems like what Mark says, especially in verse 7 and 8, a great multitude from Galilee followed him, hearing all that he was doing. They came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region of Tyre and Sidon. All of that seems to be a combination of the the, the place names. You know, oh, yeah. Mark lists all of the place names. Of course. Luke lists, some, <laughs> Luke lists some of them. Matthew lists some of them. And that's why, you know, in an earlier episode, I think we talked about the two-source theory where mm-hmm. Mark was the first written gospel and Q was alongside it, and Matthew and Luke used those two sources. And I've said, it's not that simple. Because here's, here's a case where Mark seems to be dependent upon Matthew and Luke because it seems like Mark combined mm. the content of Matthew and Luke. So this is a good example of that complexity that I was mm-hmm. talking about, mm-hmm. uh, sort of pushing back on the two-source hypothesis. Well, you know, you know my world, I always, I always am interested in also the oral history, the oral memory, sure. at a time when people really do memorize stuff yes. at a different level today. And it's hard to say what people all memorized, but depending on who told the story, Mark may have come in with all kinds of, with all these places memorized Shirley? in his head. Surely, He always gives us these interesting little nuggets of, sure. of information that others don't. So, Well, don't and, and that, that, that's the thing is that each of them do that in their own ways right. and their times when... When Mark seems to be clearly dependent upon either Matthew or Luke or both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it truly is fast. Don't you wish you were a fly on the wall somehow? I mean, <laughs> that you, could, could, that you could be there listening to the story and in how the heads they, of these how did writers. They, how did they, I mean, what, what kind of collaboration was there? What, how, what, did, what method, what process was it? It must have been fascinating. Well, yeah. um, so... Uh, I'm curious about the audience. Where does the audience come from? Well, there are two key factors here. I think, first of all, the Gospels indicate that Jesus' audience came from all over. Uh, Luke says they came from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Mm -hmm. Matthew says Syria and Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And as we heard, you know, Mark says Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. So I think we have to understand that while the majority of the crowd would have been Jewish, it's very likely that there were people from other ethnic groups as well, yeah. and not just Jewish proselytes. And I, I think we see this confirmed with the, the just the number of times that Jesus interacts with Gentiles in his I, ministry. I think so too. There's another factor here, though, and that is that we need to pay attention to the use of the word dunamis in Luke's gospel because when dunamis is used in the singular and with reference to Jesus, I think it's virtually synonymous with the power of the Mm. spirit or the power of the Lord. So this is something that's important. Um, um, You know, that one of the things that both Luke and Mark emphasize is that the crowd were trying to touch him. Right. And we saw that before, you know, mm-hmm. with the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, apparently they, the, the, the reason for that was power came out from him and healed all of them. So, yeah. so we have this almost magical view of Jesus' healing ability. But I think we should understand that, um, you know, sometimes in Luke's gospel, dunamis is the dunamis, the power is called the power of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's called the power of the spirit. But oftentimes it's just simply the power went out from him. Oh, you know, I'm thinking about this 
too. I think I think when it has this kind of larger meaning, right? This kind of uh, of power. I, I think it really takes it away from this kind of magic man Jesus that mm-hmm. one might try to interpret mm-hmm. this. This was the power of God to heal, right? Right. That was working through Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um. Now, I, one of the things that you know, especially when I work with with young people, they both notice that they, they both basically have the Beatitudes in it. Right, right. So explain this, and yet it's not the same. Yet it's not the same. And, I, you know, I w- frankly, I would be surprised if many people even recognized the Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel because we are so familiar with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. As I think about it, that's one of the few verses that most people can pull up. Right, you know? right. Oh, I know exactly. where that is. Right, mm-hmm. right. So like the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's Sermon on the Plain begins with a series of Beatitudes. And there is a formal similarity between the Beatitudes in each sermon. The blessings are pronounced on the poor, those who hunger, those who are mourning or weeping. Uh, the language of the first two Beatitudes is parallel to those in Matthew 5. But instead of the poor in spirit who are blessed, it is simply the poor who are blessed. And instead of those who hunger and thirst for justice, who are blessed, as in Matthew, it's just those who hunger now who are blessed. I think there's two ways to look at this. One is that it's, it's, it's an urgency, but it's just really the, still the same thing as the Matthew one. But others will go more further and they'll say, these are literally physical situations. Absolutely. The poor people, Absolutely. the hungry people, yeah. the weeping. And we're going to see this in our reformers too, that yeah. are going to take the little bit more collapsed approach to it. Yeah. But um, there's some of these folks that pick up on this as being an immediate right. call. This is a very immediate thing. Yeah, it's clear that Luke's Beatitudes are unique in that Jesus focuses not on what we might call spiritual qualities, mm-hmm. like being poor in spirit or hungering and thirsting for justice, but rather on more literal physical situations, mm-hmm. poverty, hunger, and weeping. Mm-hmm. And more than that, I think they address the social constructs that represent the conventional wisdom of the day and contrast that sort of conventional social construct with what we might call the completely antithetical social construct of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, 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 in the social construct of the day, those who are wealthy are blessed. They're right. the ones who are right. fortunate. Right. Those who are full, they're the ones right. who are fortunate. Right. Those who are happy now and laughing now, they're the ones who are fortunate. But Jesus turns that on its head and, and uh, uh, basically um, says, no, it's the poor, it's the hungry, it's those who weep now who are blessed. You know, as 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 I think about as I think about this, I, I think um, it, it does make you wonder about Luke's audience to yeah. some extent. Yeah. It, is his audience this poor? Or I that's mean, a good question. I, that's a good question. I think we have to sort of hang on to that because uh, we'll we'll look into that. Um, I think the I think the perhaps the the more um, salient question here is you know how can you say that those who are poor are blessed how can you say that those who are hungry and going without food are blessed how can you say that those who are weeping are blessed and you know basically the promise here is that whatever their situation it will be remedied Mm -hmm. blessed are you who are poor for yours Mm -hmm. is the kingdom of god Right. Notice he doesn't say yours will be the kingdom of God. You will inherit the kingdom of God. He says yours is the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. And there's a sense of nowness to this that's, that's characteristic, characteristic of Luke's gospel. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Right. There you have the now, right? Right. For you will be filled. Mm-hmm. Now there's the will. Right. When is not specified, but you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now. Or you will laugh. Again, there's the will, mm-hmm. there's the future tense, but and it's not really specified as when. I, th- I think, though, it's important to hear that now in those last two Beatitudes, and it really contrasts the present situation with what is to come, which I would say would be the kingdom of God. And I think, uh, you know, for one thing, it's important for us to note already, Jesus has essentially announced that the kingdom of God is 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 here. Mm-hmm. He announced the year of the Lord's favor at Nazareth, right? right? So in Luke's gospel that that's already something that's going on. I think Jesus envisions this remedy of their situation as being both now but then the full remedy comes in the fullness of the kingdom of God in the end. 
Now, it's, I think it's also important to note that the Beatitudes in Luke are spoken directly to you. Mm-hmm. Blessed are you. Right. Uh, in, in, in Matthew, it's blessed are the yeah, poor right. in spirit, uh-huh. for they, theirs right. is the kingdom of heaven. They shall so be. It, makes, it sounds know. like a different audience. Well, it's just a different, uh, it's a different um, approach. You know, um, Luke's Beatitudes are much more direct. It's mm-hmm. like Jesus is speaking directly mm-hmm. to those who are right. suffering from the current social structures that are right. oppressive right. And, right. and hungering and thirsting for the justice of God's kingdom, it, you know, it, and, and he says, you will be filled. It has a radicalness that it reminds does. me of um, the Jesus um, at, the, at the temple. You know, yeah, well, it, it, we're not. We're not basically. We're just dealing with the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the radicalness of Jesus, of, of Luke's of gospel. Luke. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know that people. I don't know that people realize that that Luke has this this edge to it. I know. Um, well, because of that tendency to collapse the gospels into one sort of narrative right, of Jesus' right. life. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think too. I, I think too. There's something about Jesus as a whole that we tend to like to think of Jesus as not being as radical as right, Jesus is. Right. I mean, this, this is really pushing the whole social agenda. Even now, even now this is radical. And this mm. really, this really messes with the way that people like to live their lives. They're kind of their, their selfish vision of the it, world. It messes so. with the Jewish regime and it messes with the Roman regime. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And you know, one of the things, you know, following up with that, I think we're so used to hearing the Beatitudes from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount that I'm, I'm not sure we can even really hear yeah. these Beatitudes and give them right. their due. Uh, the kingdom of God promised to this poor is not a spiritual realm in the first place, but rather it is a promise of the abundance and prosperity that the prophets associated with the day of the Lord. Isaiah 25 talks about the, this, this feast that God will set for all peoples. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 63, Zechariah 8 talks about people um, people um, thriving in a, in a renewed Jerusalem where the old will be able to see the young mm-hmm. playing and they'll be able to eat their own crops and, and, and it's, there's this idea of abundance. And really, we don't even have to go that far back. We can, we can see some of that in Mary's Magnificat already because mm-hmm. she, t- she right, has already, right. you know, her Magnificat has already broached these themes right. that, that uh, there's going to be this reversal, that those who are poor are going to be um, are going to be um, exalted, and those who are hungry are going to be filled. You know, and as I think about Mary, and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about this interesting parallel with this woman that is saying this, mm-hmm. and then Jesus comes and says it, and what an interesting space mm-hmm. too. I mean, yeah. even that pushes a, the yeah, radical. Mary said too. it first, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you know the idea here is that when God comes to reign. The poor, the hungry, those who weep now over their suffering oppression will have their fortunes reversed. But more than that, I think it's important for us to note that Jesus has already announced the year of the Lord's favor, or well, mm-hmm. I, I think that's another way of saying the kingdom of God, right. is I something so. that is already happening in his ministry. Right. Right. So it's not something like, well, you'll have to wait, you know, you'll have to suffer your whole life and then you'll get to see this. Right. But he's bringing that, uh, that kingdom and the relief and, and the re- justice of the kingdom right now to people through mm-hmm. his ministry. Uh, maybe this goes later, but I keep thinking of, okay, I can see the people that are hearing this and are, are, are feeling this sense of promise and hope for this time but what about the person who does have money what about the person who it does have enough to eat does one listen to this and feel that they are left out of the kingdom well i think that's part of what makes this so edgy for us and makes it so uncomfortable for us and we'll we'll talk about that in in, in a bit okay. but uh yeah i mean I, th- that's true i mean th- and and that's the that's the problem with luke's gospel in general Right. Not right. only not only this, not I mean we've already seen it. I mean with mm-hmm. the Magnificat, right? We right. we saw it with 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 the the sermon at Nazareth and we're seeing it now right. in the sermon on the plain. We're going to see it in in the parables that are unique right. to Luke's That's gospel. That's true. That's true. And, and so this is really Luke's not through with this. Right. So, <laughs> now um, the ne- yeah, the next section seems almost out of place yeah. in light of what I've just said because here it's blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the son of man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. And in, in fact, if you compare this part of the Sermon on the Plain with the Sermon on the Mount, it's very close to what mm-hmm. we find in Matthew, in Matthew 11, uh, 5, 11, and 12. At the, it's the end of what right. are traditionally known as the Beatitudes in Matthew's version. Um, but again, I think we're dealing with a combination of similarities and differences, and that's going to be the, my refrain throughout this uh, tour of the Sermon on the Plain. Mm-hmm. Here, the cause for being hated, reviled, and excluded, and defamed is not their low social status, but rather their identification with the Son of Man. And Matthew agrees with that. He says, on account of me. Mm-hmm. And the remedy is not anything physical, but rather your reward is great in heaven. So in, as opposed to now, the nowness yeah. of yeah. the other Beatitudes, this is something that, you know, they're, 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 you know, that, that is, is deferred until they mm. get to be uh, a participant of heaven. And really for now, their only consolation is that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. And of course the prophets were, were held in high esteem mm-hmm. as the servants of God. And so they could, they could identify themselves with those who were considered to be the servants of God. Mm. How do, um, how do we make sense of Luke's social justice message and its nowness? I mean, well, I think the best way to do it is to try to look at, you know, who was Luke addressing? And so mm-hmm. th- this is where we get to Luke's community. Mm-hmm. Um, in view of the content of the Beatitudes and the woes surrounding this passage, you know, some have concluded that we're to assume that Luke was addressing a community of Christians who were literally impoverished yeah. because of their faith. But others have insisted that we can make no such distinction between the various Beatitudes based on the text and that Jesus is addressing the large crowd that has come from all over the region, which includes his disciples, but also many others. And, and really, the point of this is not mm-hmm. that it's just confined to one group, but rather the great reversal of the kingdom redefines social norms for everyone. And so, you know, to some extent, and we may come back to this, but Joel Green in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke will suggest that part of the reason why Luke pays so much attention to poverty and riches is because he's addressing a, a community that has some right, means. Right. Well, and as I'm thinking about this, too, there is a certain prison that is in when your whole life is function is functioning around how much I can get and what I am getting than someone else is not getting. And I think that can be a, I mean, even if you haven't heard Jesus, I think that can be something that becomes very, it's, it's like a disease in itself. Sure. So, oh yeah. You know, to hear this would prosperity, you. prosperity yeah. is deadening. Exactly. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't um, find a way to uh, make use of our means right. to help those who are having to yeah. do without. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's been, that's been a perception of some of the great spiritual um, thinkers throughout mm-hmm. the history of the church. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that not everybody in the church agrees with that approach, but uh, you know, uh, throughout the history of the church, some of the great spiritual uh, leaders have, have pointed out the fact that y- you know, the only way to address prosperity is by generously giving away as much as you can. Right, right. Yeah. So the thing with Luke is that I know that that always makes people uncomfortable are the woes. Yes, indeed. So tell us about the woes. Yeah, and I think, you know, here, if, if we have any question or any doubts about whether Luke is concerned with the literal social conditions, I think it's made clear here when we move on to what is really something that's almost astonishing to those of us who are used to hearing the Beatitudes mm-hmm. in Matthew's version. Those of us who think of the Beatitudes only from the standpoint of Matthew's version can scarcely imagine Jesus saying these things. And right. yet in Luke's gospel, Jesus adds a series of woes that match mm-hmm. exactly the Beatitudes. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, you know, the whole, the, the genre of woes is not something that's unknown to Jesus. Matthew has a whole chapter of woes that Jesus pronounced on the Jewish religious leaders, mm-hmm. and woes against the rich were common in, Greco- in the Greco-Roman world, and Luke is familiar with the genre of woes. We'll see them throughout the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this combination of blessings and woes is unique to Luke's gospel. You don't find this, and, and really um, sort of this matching combination you know right blessings on the poor the hungry and the weeping woes on the rich Mm -hmm. the full and the laughing yeah you know that 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 is unique and and so again as in mary's magnificat 
Here we have the great reversal spelled out in graphic detail. Mm -hmm. We have a very concrete version, I think, here of the first will be last and the last first. And I, I think, again, we must hear the use of the word now. Right. Woe right. to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now. Mm -hmm. And again, the you know, I think the, the part of the point of the now here is that the current situation is in the process of being reversed with the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought. Mm -hmm. So then following the pattern of blessings, then Luke concludes this section with a woe that complements the blessing of those who are hated, reviled, and excluded and defamed. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. And I think if we understand then the basis for the Beatitudes and the woes to be this colossal mm -hmm. paradigm shift in social norms, then this woe would address those who have aligned themselves with the conventional norms by which those who have plenty of resources also have power and privilege now. now. And that's the part. I mean, you asked me about what do we make about now. That's the part that really we have a hard time swallowing now because it, it most of us are in that situation. We have the resources to have power and privilege now. Right. And, and uh, we, you know, it's hard for us to accept the thought that perhaps the way we handle that power and privilege may be contrary to God's kingdom, mm -hmm. contrary to Jesus' purposes for us. I keep hearing liberation theology right uh, here. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> well, there's a reason, it's, you know, as I point out later, there's, it's no coincidence that liberation the theologians turn to Luke's gospel yeah, as one of their yeah, main biblical yeah, sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Luke, I guess my next question is, how is Luke fitting with, the rest of the gospel, the rest of the gospel tradition as a whole. I mean, does it does it does it conflict with it, or does it? I mean, well, you know, especially when we get into Matthew next year, we're going to see. I think the biggest conflict is between Matthew and Luke because Matthew has this apocalyptic image that's really strong, um, and and um, Luke is really more in, engaged with the social justice mm -hmm. issue. And 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 you know, we, I, I really almost cringe at that word social justice because we hear that word social justice and a lot of people make assumptions about it. I would use the justice of God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. And and that is that is a theme that is found in all the gospels. Right. It's found in the New Testament. And um, we don't recognize it though because it's hidden behind our English translations. Oh, Paul's term okay. justification by faith. Yeah. It's the same the, the noun here is dikaiosune. The, the noun is ju for justification is dikaiosune. It's the same noun. Mm -hmm. It's translated justice and righteousness right. and justification. Right, right. So we have these different English translations, and we don't see the connection. But mm -hmm. there's, an, there's an integral connection between the justice of God's kingdom and the salvation that, right, that is going right. to be discussed well, in the New Testament. And as we'll talk later, when you think about the reformers and some of the theology that starts to spin out of this, and as we really think about if, if indeed we are responding to God um, the way God asks us to, it brings about a, a very different world than what we live in now. I mean, if we are all responding to each other with care and yep. and 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 giving to the poor, then the poor disappear right. ultimately, and right. then you have this very kind of utopian kind of idealistic world. No one likes to say that though, and yet one says that there seems to be some people who will always be able to make money and some people who will always mm -hmm. need it. So mm -hmm. there's, there's this kind of right. natural, how do you balance the ideal with the reality? And yeah. that is, that is the challenge. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if everyone is actually caring for each other, which is what Calvin tries to do in Geneva, you do see this world where you know, poverty and hunger is essentially non-existent because right. people have a place to live. They can rely on the community to help them. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and really that's that's the vision, I think, of Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the this worldliness of Jesus' vision of the kingdom. And I think that's part of our problem is that we we think we were we're used to thinking of the kingdom of God as something out there in the future. Mm -hmm. Something that doesn't really affect right, the here right. and now. So in the here and now we do the best we can to be good and kind and honest and nice. But right. but but the justice of the kingdom, that's that's what right. God's gonna do. But and we don't hear the fact that Jesus is saying <laughs> the justice of the kingdom is already uh, a factor right. that 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 is is at work right. in this world now, and if you're going to align yourself with my kingdom, you have to align yourself with the justice of my kingdom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's I mean it's 
it's it's the it's here now, right? Yes, it it's is. it's the hereness now. And I worked with mm-hmm. young people on this um, just this last week, and um, you know, our big we were talking about environment this week in particular. But there was this really sense of is that for the future or is that now? And you know, the kingdom's now, and Jesus is coming. Now. Is now. That's right. It's a and, very and it, but it's and it's and it's not just this spiritual transformation. It's not just about forgiveness of sins and salvation. It's about release from prison and it's about mm-hmm. being released from conditions like poverty and hunger you know mm-hmm. and 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 so it's a very this worldly vision of of salvation in in Luke and yeah. and this is something that I think you can find in the prophets as well that, yeah, that's I agree. that's the vision of of, mm-hmm. of of God's kingdom in yeah. the prophets as yeah, well yeah it's awesome so it really points to this dramatic reversal that we know as the great reversal and uh, Jesus, I think, makes it clear in very concrete detail that the poor, the hungry, those who weep now will have their needs met by God. And that's part and parcel of God's redemptive purpose. It's not just about saving souls to go to heaven. It's about restoring those who are outcast and releasing those who are oppressed. Those who are comfortable and complacent now will suffer loss because they've aligned their lives with the present social structures and against God's redemptive purposes. Now, you know, I think... The, the the question then comes into play, you know, so I live a comfortable life. Right. I live a relatively comfortable life, but am I complacent with that? And I think that's where the distinction is. Yeah. Uh, right, and I, right. I think throughout the history of the church, that's where the, dis- the distinction has been, you know, that, right. you know, we, we may, we may make use of this world's goods, but we must do it in such a way that we, we are are clear about what God's redemptive purposes in this world are, mm-hmm. and they are to feed the hungry and to alleviate the suffering right, of the poor, right. of the poor, and and these very concrete, tangible things that get lumped into social justice and sort of brushed aside as something that's not really relevant to us. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So why then is there such a difference between Matthew and Luke? Well, I think that's a good question, really, because it, the difference is so prominent. You know. Um, why do we find this emphasis on rich and poor, on mercy, on kindness in, in, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes? And I think one answer is that in Luke's gospel, uh, and I'm quoting here, Jesus addressed the poor, the hungry, the discouraged, and the persecuted with the message that God is on their side, supporting them in their struggle, and that God's just will focuses on their relief. Because people opposed to God are currently in charge, God's kingdom is not now fully present, and God's will is not now being fully done, but it will not remain so. And that's a quote from David Kaler. Uh, His book Mm -hmm. is called Jesus the Prophet. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best um, uh, treatments of this whole theme of justice, Mm -hmm. the justice of the kingdom Mm -hmm. in Jesus' teachings I've ever ever seen. Mm -hmm. Jesus the Prophet by David Kaler. And, um, you know, we, we've heard of this in various other kinds, you know, the preferential option for the poor, that was a Roman Catholic mm-hmm. right, uh, version right, of right. it. Um, liberation theology, as, as we've noted already, takes their cue from Luke's gospel. Right, right. Um, but I think, I think part of the answer, too, here is that one of the major intentions of Jesus' ministry was to call Israel back to yes, God's standards yes. of justice, which are laid out in the covenant, in the Torah. Right, right. You know, here's the thing, you know, Jesus comes along and they, they accuse him of being this, this sinner and of, of, of being a glutton and, you know, eating and, and drinking. And, and, you know, they're the ones, the, the very keepers of the law are the ones who have ignored the standards of justice that are clearly laid out in the Torah. Mm-hmm. already and so jesus is essentially calling them to return to that and and because that is that is the essential nature of right. god's kingdom right. that that god's kingdom will adjust will establish justice for all right so and true it's, justice it's god's not, justice i think we want to think of this as a new message um something different yeah. but yet this you is, can trace the origins of this back to exactly. the back to back to the the torah well it reminds me of that wholeness of, of scripture you know that mm-hmm. we're talking about and uh, you know, we, we've talked about already today that this seems to be maybe different than how Jesus is or maybe different, but this all fits in with the broad um, 
well, kind of broad arching um, And remember, that's one of scripture. Luke's main concerns. He wants to write the story of Jesus into that broad that's narrative true. that begins, mm-hmm. you know, with Abraham. Right. And and that includes the Torah. Mm-hmm. For Luke is not, you know, I think a lot of people tend to associate Luke with Paul, and so they would attribute to him sort of an antinomian tendency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Luke has none of those. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So basically, we're going to come back to these issues again and again in Luke's gospel. As I said before, many of the parables that are unique unique to Luke's gospel will address the themes of the great reversal, mm-hmm. like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right. for example, like to the parable of the unrighteous steward. There are a number of parables that are found only in there. We know them. They're found only in Luke's gospel, and they go right along with this theme, this emphasis on the great reversal, and even mm-hmm. more so bring out uh, some of the parables bring out the danger of wealth. Mm-hmm. And when we come to Luke 14 on September 4th, of 2022, that's the Sunday that we'll be dealing with this passage, we will hear Jesus declare categorically, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Now, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, the early church already began the process of justifying the need for possessions and applied this aspect of Jesus' teachings only to those who took on the higher calling of monastic life, which completely misses the point because Jesus wasn't concerned about the conduct of individuals Uh, primarily. He was concerned about about the way in which society, the way in which human society was was ordered, mm-hmm. and it was not ordered rightly, and it still is not ordered rightly. <laughs> right, right. It's um, yeah. I think um, I think this is an amazing um, amazing piece of study. So thank you for the um, outline of this, and uh, I'll tell you a little about um, what some of the reformers said. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and Christy's going to fulfill her promise and uh, tell us something about the how the Reformers dealt with this. So take it away, Christy. Sure. Well, of course, there's always a couple themes. And so the main theme I want to talk about today is poverty, but the second will be freedom. And both of these, they pulled out of... Um, out of these passages. Now, again, as I remind you every week, <laughs> that our reformers will collapse the Gospels. And um, they do note that Luke is different. They do not form a separate interpretation of the Luke really? version. Huh. Um, Calvin, in particular, notes that the notes the woes, for example, which are really uniquely Luke, and claims that you, Luke uses this as a means to, quote, inspire terror in the ungodly, but also to rouse the faithful so that they are not lulled to sleep by feign and deceitful enticements, enticements of the world. Well, that sounds like Calvin. <laughs> ah, that's so good. <laughs> doesn't right? sound much like Luke, but it sounds like uh, Calvin. Uh, Exactly. <laughs> well, because he has to explain why those yes, are in course. there because it's still within this context of 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 the collapsing so you can't well but it's also within the context where where people in the church in geneva have exactly (laughs) exactly they have means um and so you know we talk about this tension in calvin with the hope of salvation for all but the reality is Mm, some wake a walk from away from god and the evil exists and we're going to see this as being one of his real uh, problems here is he handles the idea of um, the idea to some extent of of poverty of of true poverty ultimately becomes po- caught up with not being chosen. Oh, um, so if you're truly impoverished, it's because you're reprobate. Because if you are indeed accepting the good that yeah. God is giving you, so and wow, we'll, we'll talk so, about so this. so the godly poor is a, is something of a foreign concept to, to Calvin. I guess a, a little bit. I yeah. mean, it's, so this is. I mean, this really gets into how European of him the, the problems. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if 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 indeed it, the Christian body is doing its job and is taking care of the poor, which are always there then they're really not fully impoverished and if you are still there Mm -hmm. and so i think you could see how calvin who doesn't mean to this to be this kind of criticism of the poor per se initially has to reconcile it with Mm -hmm. god's sovereignty and god's chosen and god's chosen and 
So yeah, it, well, and it becomes this whole thing about theodicy, you mm-hmm. know, that God would not truly abandon a godly person to poverty. You know, one of the Psalms says that, right? Mm-hmm. I've never seen the righteous, you know, going hungry right. or their children begging for bread. Right. Well, I have. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <I have. laughs> exactly. You know, and, and I don't even have to go out of this country to see that. <laughs> exactly. So, and I think part of it is, um, you know, looking at our reformers, if they understand this as a commentary on the actual state of affairs, is it the social reality of early modern Europe? Um, in other words, is early modern Europe, are they looking at around them and are they seeing poverty around them and how are they supposed to do it? Now, mind you, you're dealing in a time where most people see that people are called to these certain orders in, in society. I mm-hmm. mean, there are those they who have are, roles, roles, specific it's, roles. Yeah. It's kind of coming outside of the medieval period before it. But yeah, if you are born into nobility, right. you are noble. Right. And if you are born into a peasantry, you are a peasant. Right. And um, so this kind of idea of everyone's equal isn't there. Right. But even if you are called into peasantry, even if you're in a poor group, you're still not, again, we talked about this kind of uh, God's taking care of you. You're unless, not destitute. Yeah. So there are a few, however, and I don't want to leave them out, the radicals, who do see this call out of the poor and the hungry as a social commentary. Um, and I pick up on a fellow named Peter Walpott who has advocated a community of goods, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a kind of um, a utopia where everyone is sharing their possessions in kind. And, um, but the mainstream reformers, saw this more as a condition of a human heart, saw this passage um, taking away from the kind of uh, radicalness that we saw before. The poor were blessed not because of being poor itself, uh, but, was, but that they were spiritually poor. Well, and here I think we see the church's discomfort with being a church that has means and being told, <laughs> woe to you <laughs> yeah 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 it's an interesting yeah it's anyway the woes that accompany are interesting as they're not matthew and mark so this is a problem for them because how do you make sense of it right. collapse them um and uh these are really admonitions according to calvin against behavior that proceeds from spiritual laxness this is not really um the same kind of problem that we saw before i mean they're really still interpreting it's not this, a social issue right, it's a spiritual one just like matthew did yes not yes, like luke yes. does the yes. point is that in looking at a works kind of world these are like the anti-works mm-hmm. and becoming involved in these in their excess reflect a lack of spiritual direction mm. The wow. reality is, as God's people, we are to fall into faith, which then produces good works in us. Anti-works don't keep us out of heaven any more than they get us into, more than works get us into heaven, but they reflect someone who is in a spiritual abyss. Wow. <laughs> you know, and again, the reality is, I've met some people whose piety puts mine to shame, who live with... M- Far less means mm-hmm. than I do. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting. Yeah. So it leads to an interesting problem as those who behave in excess can be viewed by the chosen in Calvin's language as people that obviously do not have a spiritual fortitude or faith, right? Which, which is ironic because I, I think it's a matter of how you define excess, right? Yeah. Because yeah. if you see excess as causing you to be impoverished, you know, well, okay, right. If you go out and gamble and, and drink and, and, and you're impoverished because of that, I can see where he would, he would, that would be his framework. Right. But, but what about someone who's, who's impoverished because their land was taken by yeah. a rival exactly. lord? Exactly, exactly. You know? <laughs> well. And, 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 and where does the excess come in? Does the excess come in in terms of the excess luxuries that the wealthy have at the expense of right, their peasants? Right, <laughs> Well, and I think there's a, a sense there that if this person truly is indeed one of the chosen and 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 um, godly that that will be restored mm-hmm. that, in God's time. Yeah. So there that that you can wait for this this kind of redemption. But if it isn't, then the, so you're starting to see how you're starting to see how this this whole problem of God's sovereignty and then being called by God and good people, how it leads then to this, well, gosh, how do we make sense of? Well, in a sense, I mean, I mean, what Jesus said dies the death of a thousand qualifications. 
you know, because you qualified so much that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right, right. Yeah. And, and and I'm not picking on Calvin here. I think the church has been done that for centuries. I do too. It do. So it really explains how in the Reformed tradition, behavior was ultimately judged as it was a reflection of the reprobate. Wow. Now, while this is a tendency, it does not mean that reformers were unaware of the problem. And we actually have a piece by Johannes Brentz, who warns us not to judge people by reputation. Good so for him. <laughs> I, exactly. So they're aware, but you can see, how, and this has gone on, right? Yeah. We look at the person that comes, you know, the poor person who comes into the back of the church and we, our eyes get big. We're like, who is this bad guy coming into our presence? I mean, guilty of we're seeing that. I, right. I went to a, a church in Chicago, and as everyone walks by the poor, impoverished person begging outside, and it is it has been a problem with, with the church. Sure, sure. So I think it is in, an interesting balance of hoping for the salvation of all, recognizing that some do not behave within the sphere of the good works of the saved that we should not judge. Yeah. And I think this ultimately reflects a real faith, but I think it does set the foundation for our, le- um, our, our legal situation today, which a world that assumes the best about people, mm. innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Okay. Oh, so, <laughs> um, theologically, this comes from the issue of works righteousness. And if you were to do all of these things, then you are reaching heaven. So, Calvin combats this. Obviously, this is a, that's a catholic that, that, view and that doesn't fit with his right. theology of he grace com- yeah he compats this that reward in heaven is not what christ means by reward it is not something earned so calvin explains that works are a result of god's goodness and done in those whom god has chosen there is reward but not for action but for responding to grace that they are responding to the promise of eternal life so in other words you're still you're still doing works it's just mm-hmm. where they come from right right um, um, but again, and I, I said this before with this idea, our focus should be on Christ, but poverty itself can't be a work. You can't, you can't say I'm really poor, like, like, like the monks. And this is response to Roman Catholicism. Oh, right. I can't give away all my stuff and be poor because be that a is a work thing. in itself. Right, right, Does right. that make sense? What he was after yeah. there? In so, other words, I, 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 I gain piety by give, be becoming poor. Yeah, yeah, and that's poverty. a work in itself. So yeah. this, again, it, it leads to this whole idea of, of, of chosen and responding in faith well, to God. Well, it's, it's not consistent with the, with the theology of grace. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, again, it re- re- emerges in the reforming process, and I think the interpretation was in part because of the physical prop- pro- poverty endured mm. by the monasteries that did not necessarily bring about poverty. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I could see where they could they they would they would view poverty from that lens. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so again, they were elevated to the monks to the spiritual status. We kind of talked about that before, um, but uh, the act did not free them. And uh, this was yeah. The a- monasteries were some of the. You know, they had some of the most wealth. You know, they were probably, some of the monasteries were probably had more wealth than some of the lords, you exactly. know, the feudal lords around them. Exactly. Well, that's what <laughs> kept happening. And so, as and to their defense, people would, would think they were very holy and they'd give money to the monasteries mm-hmm. and the monasteries would get very rich because they really didn't spend that much. Right. And so they ended up then, instead of being these kinds of perfect um, uh um, perfect examples of, of Christian poverty as they saw, they ended up being very much corrupted by the yeah. same kind of wealth yeah. that corrupts. So it's right. this interesting, yeah. uh, interesting problem. What is true poverty? Right. I do think um, it's interesting that even Erasmus noticed that Jesus healing not came from the actions of others, but through their faith and that they came to listen to Jesus, not bec- because they could prove their poverty. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting observation by Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the final part on this poverty piece is what about wealth? And so in Calvin's world, we must use physical wealth correctly, um, just as we use physical poverty correctly. Mm. So that is in taking care of each other um, yeah. Well, and I, I'll give him credit there. I think he's not far off track with that. Right. I think yeah. I think that's right. And I think the the big piece out of this that we were talking about is, oh, well, then I should be poor, but are you using poor as work? 
mm-hmm. to gain favor right. with God. That doesn't right. that doesn't work no, either. That you doesn't have make sense, yeah. you have to rely on the sovereignty of God. You have to rely on uh, you have to rely on faith. Yeah, I think in Jesus in Jesus sermon on the plane, he's addressing people who have been dif- disenfranchised by the by those who hold power and privilege and are using it unjustly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the la- other theme that I found in here was one uh, the idea of freedom and um, this. I was in this conversation just last week with my parishioners who um, seemed to believe that Calvin is credited um, with predestination and therefore he doesn't believe in freedom. And that would be a common assumption. I we've think. talked about that before. Yeah. Um, and so here we get the warning against excess. There's a concept that if you are predestined, then it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> so Calvin explains that this is a warning against that type of thinking, mm. that freedom is spiritual and does not relate to our physical actions. There is a deep theological message here about the spirit of God freeing you from the burden of earning your salvation in works and yet the desire to do works or in Luther's terms, the bondage to do works out of freedom. So the bondage of the spirit, um, that causes us to do these works. Sure, so that's, sure. uh, this is all high reformation theology, but it's right. really so central, I think to who we are today. I, I think, Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, and I think this is part of where that whole disconnect comes between our salvation and social justice, mm-hmm. you know, because exactly. salvation is what, what we're really concerned about. And social justice is just for those activists out there. Or vice versa. There's many, many churches that right. dump away with that. And it's all about social justice. Right. That's it's all their... about social justice and they're embarrassed about the gospel. So they don't really deal with that. They right. just address social justice. Right, right. right. So um, I think we struggle here because the particular set of woes has um, um, ha- the particular woes and even the blessings seem so concrete when the idea of spiritual freedom seems so intangible. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's the challenge is because we we have we have equated what Jesus is about with something spiritual and therefore intangible. And right, here right. Jesus is speaking very exactly. concretely. He's exactly. not he's, Jesus doesn't allow us to put him in that to paint him in that box. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the, where Calvin jumps in with the tangible part of this is he said, if you are riches, riches will cause you to covet. It is mm. part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. It is part of our sinful condition. And I think that's that where that that's tangibility comes in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a good insight. Yeah. Um, uh, f- finally, one explanation by Heinrich Bullinger is that the reward is the freedom, oh, which right. I think was good. Yes. Uh, he criticizes the idea of reward, which has this tangibility of yep. working to obtain something. Here, the idea of reward is freedom itself, from the reward punishment Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I think the challenge here is to understand the word reward differently than we would traditionally think about it. As Bulliger quote, those things which God gives to us are not rewards, but they are his free gifts, freely given without any merit in us. Uh, Which is the theology of grace, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So uh, we look at this thick, thick st- theology that comes out of this, but I think it's really important for us today to, to process because I think it's very easy to pull into this kind of social justice kind of approach alone from this scripture and then kind of ignore God's, um, God's sovereignty. Sure. And so I think... We have it's to try to here. we have to try to figure out how to balance the spirituality of, of our faith with the tangibility of our faith yeah. and the and the demands for justice. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Sounds like a conversation for, our, for, so. for the next segment. I think so. <laughs> Hi everybody. We are back and uh you know, as we were talking in our little break, really the big issue here is this issue of social justice and this kind of concrete vision that Jesus gives us, and yet what our spiritual call is, and, and are these one and the same, or are they different, or to what extent does is social justice really what the church is all about, or to what extent is it a response to um, this kind of spiritual call in our lives? And so I think we're going to delve into this topic. And so, Alan, why don't, why don't you give us a two cents worth? Well, and it may be worth about that much. Um, <laughs> I would say from Luke's perspective, um, 
the call is about the kingdom of God. And the call is to follow Jesus in working to bring the kingdom of God and to bring the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom of God to the people of this world. And in Luke's gospel, there is, there, that blessing is aphesis, which means both forgiveness in a spiritual sense and also release in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. And there's no distinction. There's no distinction between, between spiritual, uh, spiritual salvation and physical redemption. You know, it's mm-hmm. all one and the same. It's the justice of God's kingdom. That's why right. I, I really love that phrase as right. opposed to social justice. We're talking about the justice of God's kingdom. This right. is the justice that God envisions in the prophets. This is the justice mm-hmm. that God lays out in the law. You know, when, mm-hmm. he, when he sets up things like the, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, right? What was supposed to happen in the year of the Lord's favor? All the land was supposed to go back right. to their original owners. Right. All debts were supposed to be canceled. Debts canceled. And people are basically set free from all their obligations so that they can have a fresh start every 50 right, years. Right, right. <laughs> can you imagine, I mean, right. in, in our in our society, can you imagine, um, you know, everybody getting oh, a fresh start every 50 no, years, leveling no. the playing field every 50 years? Well, you know, th- th- that reminds me of a political thing I heard at, at one point, and, and this is not a political uh, endorsement or criticism of our former president, but he had said, you know, I does anyone really need more than $400,000 a year? You know, it was a legitimate thought. He's like, right? what can't you do? That's a lot of money. Right. And um, to live very, very lavishly. Of right. course, any comment like that is, you don't, I worked hard for this money. I deserve this money. What, you know, how, how dare you um, even suggest that? But so it's a really interesting, it's an interesting situation because by and large, if you have all these blessings of riches, probably someone at your at your expense is impoverished, and that's general. I mean, I think that's one of the things that was being pointed out here. Well, and and you know, there was a time when when I thought of it as uh, you know from a standpoint of a finite set of resources, and to some extent with our natural resources, you know, we do have a finite right. amount of natural resources. Um, I was thinking in terms of a finite number uh, or a finite amount of, of economic resources as well. And I had a friend, just a dear godly man, who was, who was involved in banking. And he helped me to see that one of, the, one of the benefits of a market society is that, you know, someone can have an idea and they can start a business and maybe in five or 10 years, they may be employing 40 people right. at a living wage, mm-hmm. including benefits and insurance. Well, that's 40 families. Right. You know, and so basically, that business is generating um, e- economic resources that weren't there right. prior to the starting of this exactly. business. And so that's the great strength right. of capitalism exactly. is that you know, we have the, the ability right. to create um, economic resources for people where that didn't exist right, before. Right. Now, the great weakness is, of course, as we all know, that um, what happens is the rich tend to get richer, and, and the, the, those who have the most resources right. tend, to, tend to be in control of the most resources, and so it just flows that way. It doesn't, right. you know, President Reagan, with all due respect to him, his, his view of trickle-down economics, you know, I love the fact that when George Bush was running against him, he called it voodoo economics. You know, right, it just right. doesn't work that way. Right, People, right. people who, have, who have those funds don't let go of them. They keep them. Ex- exactly. And, and yeah. so, you know, here we have Jesus mm-hmm. directly contradicting the structure right the economic structure of our society how do we deal with that <laughs> it, it, I, well exactly well and of course you know some we said some some of the most radical would say yeah and therefore if you are rich you give everything away mm-hmm. and you equal the playing field right but as we know that doesn't work, right. Um, right. <laughs> you know. Chinese history, communism, and that thing—it doesn't work. I look at I look at at the history of the lottery in this country. 
you know, people yeah. who become instant millionaires exactly. who squander everything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. no, yeah, I agree. That's not the answer. Um, um, and I think the, I think again, you know, again, if we, we take a cue from Joel Green, perhaps the problem here is the reason why Luke is addressing this is because he's addressing people who have means and he is very much in tune with this demand of the kingdom of God and the demand that Jesus makes of those who will follow him. And, and so he's holding their feet to the fire as it were. Um, but, um, and, and, you know, you might think that Luke's answer is you got to give it all away. I don't think that's Luke's answer. I don't think that's Luke's answer because if you, either. if you look in the book of Acts, you know, in the book of Acts, the answer was not that everybody gave everything. Right. It was as they had things that they could give they gave them to the apostles and they brought them sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles feet to be distributed for the poor so it's really more of an ethic of sharing yes as opposed to hoarding right that's the key i think here i think that's really more about an ethic of sharing and as opposed to hoarding now again you know i would say that the church has been very very stingy with its understanding of sharing as well, <laughs> uh, historically, yeah, yeah. Uh, in some cases, I mean, there've right. been some, there've been some, right. as you know, been some examples of people who are just wonderful. I mean, Mother Teresa, you know that, right? You know, well, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting space, right? And I, I know I've seen this conversation now in three congregations that I've been a part of, and you know, they are wanting to do a new building um, uh, campaign, you know, and and they want to build on and. In, in some cases, there's, well, you, we can't have a building. We should be giving that money away. That's too expensive. And there's a logic there. We should be taking care of those folks. On the other hand, there's a logic of, but if we have better space that we could provide to the community that would mm-hmm. allow for more groups that help people to meet, that, sure, you know, there's a responsibility there as well. Yeah. Now, building it and saying, we're not going to share it with anybody right. might be worse. Right. But with a church that has a long history of providing space for community uh, meetings for Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, for various types of Boy Scout and yeah. Girl Scout troops for various types of we um, of uh, um, uh, ARC uh, programs. I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of spaces and people that need meeting spaces so yeah i think there's i mean i think that i think that that can be more nuanced than just give all your money to the poor yeah well you know i i've i've dealt with this for a a long time um uh in my in my own study of the gospels and um you know one of the things i found was one of the most helpful concepts about uh, having the proper perspective on your possessions. And I probably told this story before. I don't know. I tell it a lot, it, but it, uh, it came from Richard Foster's celebration of discipline. And with his, in the chapter, in his chapter on the discipline of simplicity, you know, he talks about, you know, take your favorite possession, whatever your favorite possession is and start trying to find a way to give it away. Mm-hmm. Well, at that time in my life, my favorite possession was a classical d- guitar that I had been, I, I bought it when I was in my transition from, from leaving Southwestern Seminary, my teaching career, and, and going into becoming a pastor. And then I went through a divorce, and I continued to use it as a way of getting through just all of the, all of the emotional baggage of all of that. And it was, became a good friend to me, uh, besides the fact that it was a nice guitar. And so I thought, okay, Lord, well, here you go. Um, uh, help me find a way to give away this guitar. So my stepson, Zach, was a guitar major, a jazz guitar major in college, and it came to a point where he needed a classical guitar. So I gave it to him. And um, some might say, well, that doesn't really count because it's your stepson. And, and yet, you know, it helped him. He, he used it in his program, and he had it for several years. And, you know, when he was done with it, he actually gave it back to me. And it came back to me, and I'm, I still use it. It's no longer my favorite possession, but um, I, I learned a lot through that experience mm-hmm. of being willing to give away that which I mm-hmm. cherished most mm-hmm. in this world. Um, um, and, and I think that's been sort of, the, as I said, that's been sort of the wisdom that I've learned from spiritual um, leaders of throughout the ages is that the only way to master wealth is to find 
find a way of giving away as much of it as you can mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe more than you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and that I think is the challenge for us because, you know, we do have a notion of charity and we do have a notion of giving, but we give what we, what we don't miss. What we don't miss. Yes. We give what yes. we don't miss. It's very true. We give what's convenient. Right. And, and we're complacent with that. So we are complacent in that, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. in that we think, well, I give, you know, a token amount. That's not it. You right. know, the, the discipline right. of, of stewardship and the discipline of simplicity calls us to give beyond that level. Well, there's a freedom in that, too, because it, yes. it takes away this kind of, of, of love of possession yeah. that, that really controls our lives and mm-hmm. allows this kind of freedom of, uh, of, of, of what letting away and, and, and really getting things to people that really are in need. Yeah. And um, it's very, um, I, think that's, I think that's what we're talking about when, when you right. truly love God, when, when, that's, your, when that's your call, then, then this, you're kind of free to do, you're free to, to share what you have of, of yourself and your possessions. It, it, it changes your worldview. It, changes, it shifts how you... It does. It shifts your... It, and you, I mean, it sort of loosens that sense of attachment of, I need this. Mm-hmm. My life is dependent upon this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what we're going to hear through Jesus in Luke's gospel right, is right. our life really depends upon God. Right. And when we can orient our life so that we really do believe everything about my life is dependent upon God right. and not my bank account, you know, then we're in the right space. But as long yeah. as we think, well, yeah, God's responsible for my salvation, but my bank account is responsible for my livelihood and my retirement. And I've got, right. you know, these are things that I have to have in order to be able to live and, and, right. you know, and, 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 and it dies right. the death of a thousand qualifications again, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I've, I think I've quoted this before, but a friend of mine, Stephen Shoemaker, uh, published a book of sermons called God Stories. And he put it this way. He said, in, and particularly in Luke's gospel, there are only two ways you can enter the kingdom and experience its joy. One is to be among the poor, oppressed, bruised, blind, and broken hearted, those to whom God comes as healing, comfort, justice, mm-hmm. and freedom. The other way is to be among God's people who are going to the poor, oppressed, Blue, yes, bruised, yes. blind, and brokenhearted, and bringing God's healing, comfort, justice, and freedom, and yeah. and so it's not just social justice as right. a kind of add-on. Right. It is the justice of the kingdom that is yes. central to what God to God's redemptive purpose in this world. It is not just about getting souls to heaven. It is about making things right. Yes, yes, yes. I agree a hundred percent, and uh, I think that's a perfect place for us to stop. Yeah. Thanks, yes. Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.